2: The old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, as paraphrased by Zizek, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. In an earlier episode, um, we had uh, taken up uh, with our uh, friend of the podcast, Moira Donegan of The Guardian, uh, the possibility um, that uh, there would be a major decision uh, on abortion um, uh through the uh, Texas District Court um that uh the um, uh, Justice uh, Matthew Kismarek uh was looking to overturn um the uh, FDA approval of uh mefuprisprone, uh the most widely used uh abortion uh, medicine now, um, uh, which is uh, the most common way that uh, uh, women in America, um, uh have abortions uh and over the um weekend uh i think significantly on a good friday uh because uh, um the uh judge uh uh, Kismarik, uh is a religious fanatic uh he, he chose the uh, the easter weekend to uh make this decision um and we're now in a situation of kind of um legal chaos because there was um uh a decision in another um jurisdiction uh, uh d- that went in the opposite way uh, the, uh everything is being appealed uh there's I think a lot of sort of confusion about it so um I'm happy to once again welcome uh more M- M- uh Donegan. um not because it's a happy occasion <laughs> but because it is uh the uh this is something that uh, we should take up um and she's also someone who offers a great deal of clarity and insight into this so so maybe I, I think the first thing to maybe start off with is just sort of like what is the decision what what the impacts are going to be uh, and then just get a basic explainer and then also i mean i think it's some useful uh things to say about you know uh, what people should know about their own health care and what is you know still currently available uh, you know uh, right now
3: Hi, G. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I think the first thing listeners need to know is that you can still get, as of the time of this recording, a very standard mifepristone misoprostol abortion. Uh, the judge who is, uh, his his name is Michael Kismarek. He is a, or I'm sorry, Matthew Kismarek. Um, (laughs) uh, he is a, uh, Trump appointed a district judge in a northern district of Texas and out of Amarillo, Texas. He is the only judge in that district. Uh, and he issued this ruling uh, invalidating the FDA's approval of mifepristone, which, if it was allowed to go into effect, would make it illegal to prescribe or distribute the drug in the United States. It's a nationwide injunction, right? Um, he also put in when he you know, issued this order, a uh, suspension of his own order for seven days. So seven days beginning on Friday. So you know, we're recording uh, Monday morning uh, on April 10th. Um, so there's a few more days before it goes into effect. If it does, the Biden administration and the manufacturer of Mifepristone have both um, signaled their intent to appeal. Uh, and because there is a conflicting order out of a, from a different district judge in the Eastern uh, District of Washington state, it's it's more or less guaranteed right now that this is going to go to the Supreme Court uh, for judicial review probably quite fast. Um, so it might be useful just to talk about what mifepristone is. It is a, a drug that was developed for the purposes of terminating pregnancies. Uh, In France, back in the late 1980s, it works by blocking the pregnancy hormone progesterone, which terminates the uh, pregnancy. And then in the United States and in most um, abortion, medical abortion protocols, it's used in combination with another drug called misoprostol, which induces contractions, which expel the content of the uterus. So there's one drug to end the pregnancy and one drug to expel the pregnancy. Uh, he has terminated or uh, rendered an injunction against the drug that um, ends the pregnancy, that first drug. And you know, this was a lawsuit that was brought by um, a group of medical providers who claim that they might one day have to treat patients who have had negative side effects from mifepristone. Um, and that they therefore have standing to sue, which is kind of a novel theory of standing, uh, for you know, a lawsuit against the FDA.
2: Um, and by novel, yeah, 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 well, yeah we we care about this. It's <laughs> um... like, not like in this case they could show anyone who's actually been hurt by the use of the drug. It's like just uh, doctors, you know, who come are coming from a particular ideological position are saying, well, one day, you know, this could happen. Um, and in general, I mean, there's a kind of, uh, uh as you mentioned, um, is like widely studied, uh, perhaps even excessively studied precisely because it's dealing with abortion. Uh, it's gotten a lot of scrutiny. It was very delayed in its introduction to the United States. And so we know a lot about it, a lot of medical research into it. And, um, uh, you know, there's issue of, uh, the standing of, um, of purely speculative, uh, doctors uh, being able to introduce this case. And there's also, you know, the evidence that these doctors brought forward and the evidence that the judge was looking at. Uh, you know, was he relying on the, you know, like this this vast scholarly literature that we have on uh, uh, mefrocristrom?
3: Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit, Jeet, before we started recording, which is that like in a lot of women's healthcare, you have this sort of problem of understudied medical conditions, understudied treatments, And that is really not (laughs) true of abortion in particular because abortion medication is subject to so much political scrutiny that is actually incredibly well studied. And mifepristone has overwhelmingly been found to be safe. And, you know, the um, judge's order had an interesting workaround for this. He said that, you know, it had to be these doctors suing about hypothetical patients because women who have had medication abortions are so traumatized by the experience that they are rendered unable to bring suit on their own behalf. Uh, so, you know, he's got these, like the anti-choice movement, um, relies a lot on sort of the fetus as an imaginary friend to whom all these like virtues and qualities can be, uh, you know, rhetorically attributed. And Kismar has this invention of also having these imaginary friends of women who supposedly uh, regret their abortions and were so terribly harmed by them.
2: Yeah, um, no, no. Oh, I no. Also- not know. I uh, know, yeah, yeah. It's like literally the judge, uh, not literally, but Figuratively, one could say the judge is saying, "Well, yes, we we uh, have many women who are um, have been hurt by this drug. Uh, they're all up in Canada, so we we can't bring them." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <she laughs> goes, so so cool. This? You want to know? Real. Her. Yeah, the, the, the imaginary uh, girlfriend uh, <laughs> that is uh, uh, wants the drug banned because they've been hurt by it.
3: Yeah, yeah, and you know it's a little like the um, the imaginary hypothetical fetus who matters more than the real. Breathing, living woman and her desires uh, in the anti-choice mind It's like the imaginary, hypothetical woman uh, who regrets her abortion and was harmed by it is much more uh, important in the anti-choice mind than the actual women who um, are quite happy with their medication abortions. Thank you very much. And and again, this is also another uh, quite rigorously studied <laughs> phenomenon. This question of uh, whether do women regret their abortions or not, and empirical evidence suggests that overwhelmingly no. Five years after an abortion, 95% of women uh, say that the abortion was the right choice for them, according to a 2020 study by the University of California at San Francisco. Um, That is not the data that Kismaric uh, relied on in his opinion. He relied on an anonymous survey from a website called abortionchangesyou.com uh which found that 83% of again the anonymous uh contributors to a website called abortionchangesu.com uh regretted their said they were women who regretted their abortion. So you know that's um there is some uh inventive conjuring of um scenarios that are not present in like the the
2: actual facts
3: um he's making shit up he's making it up uh because reality doesn't support his position
2: okay well no so if you have a judge who's like you know on the face of it uh you know it seems like a ludicrous decision uh you know based on as you mentioned the standing based on the scientific evidence and also i mean i think one thing we didn't mention the other reason why it's ludicrous is that he's also um or at least very unusual, let's say, is that he's uh relying on like a very old law um to have um to assert the power of contr- uh judges to decide on, on these medical issues. Like there's this revival of the sort of Comstact Act, uh which you know dates back to the late 19th century. And even in the 19th century was kind of like widely mocked as an example of American Puritanism. Uh so um uh, can it really be that the Comstock Act of all things is like going to have an actual impact on the medical choices of American women in the 21st century? How is this possible?
3: Yeah, we should. This has been a uh, hobby horse of anti choice litigation, uh, f- basically since Dobbs and, and a little bit preceding Dobbs. The Comstock Act is an 1873 federal law which makes it illegal to send through the mail any material deemed, quote unquote, obscene. And, you know, obscenity was defined in the law as including, I think like pornography, anything depicting miscegenation, I might be getting this wrong, but specifically it prohibited um, anything that could be used for contraception or abortion or anything that encouraged the use of contraception or abortion. Uh, So part of Kismaric's order was that he revived the Constock Act, saying that it is illegal to send abortion medication through the mail um this would if if the Comstock Act if that interpretation of the constock act uh, went, stood up in court um, it would effectively ban all abortions in the United States because even surgical abortions like the instruments used the the you know the curette um the dilators like these all have to be sent from the industrial like medical industrial manufacturing facilities where they're created like through um mail or like carrier services to actual providers so it's sort of like a backdoor way to ban all abortion but the thing is like this act has not been enforced for like decades it was mocked at the time it was declared invalid in um Griswold versus Connecticut the 1965 uh Supreme Court decision that legalized contraception between married couples. And the prohibition on mailing contraception through the mail was explicitly revoked by Congress in I believe 1970. Uh, So this is a dormant act. It's an act that has like wildly uh, chilling effects on speech and commerce. And it is one that the anti-choice you know it was considered outdated and creepy and weird in eighteen seventy three <laughs> um you know, and uh this is what the anti choice movement feels is the um the sort of vehicle in which they will usher in their their preferred version of the country
2: yeah yeah so 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 for all these reasons i mean like it does seem like there's like a lot of um ways in which this uh the uh, law could be uh, uh, the judge's decision seems like really off and uh, could be overturned. And, like, you know, surely uh, the American legal system uh, has procedures in place that we can be confident that, like, a judge, the wackadoodle judge who makes a, de- a decision like this, uh, surely there's like some ways in which uh, uh, we can uh, ha- have a great deal of assurance that uh, uh, it's going to be uh, overturned, right?
3: Right. Well, I would love to be able to provide that insurance. I can't. But before we move on to the procedural, um, you know, the grim sort of procedural path forward for, for how to challenge this decision and what the Biden administration's options are, I want to flag one more item in Kismarik's reasoning, which is that he endorses fetal personhood. He says, I believe, once in the body of his text and once in a footnote, citing an uh, amicus brief that was filed in Dobbs. That you can make the argument that the persons actually hurt by Mif- mifepristone are not the, the women patients, which has been sort of the one of, one of the main anti abortion uh, litigation uh, tactics for a long time has been to like advance this fiction that abortion is bad for women's health. But he says like you can make the argument that actually the people harmed are the fetuses, and it's actually you know worth noting that he refuses to use the word fetus claiming in a footnote that it's unscientific and refers throughout to, quote unquote, unborn humans and unborn babies. Um, You know, really adopting like pretty inflammatory rhetoric throughout his order uh, that was. um, You know, it's it's the rhetoric of an anti-abortion activist, because that's in fact who is writing is this judge is an anti-abortion activist. Um, And, you know, fetal personhood. It has always been the anti-abortion movement's end goal, but it's really a different kettle of fish even from the most draconian abortion bans. Fetal personhood would outlaw most kinds of hormonal contraception or most kinds of uh, woman-controlled contraception. It would severely curtail access of by women of reproductive age to a whole array of health treatments, including things like Chemotherapy to uh antidepressants to you know um addiction treatment like all kinds of things would be uh inaccessible a lot of contact conduct for um pregnant or reproductive age women would be able to be criminalized, including just like daily conduct like you know having a glass of wine <laughs> or um like smoking some marijuana or like you know um engaging in uh excessive physical exertion you know this is fetal personhood ushers in a kind of surveillance and limitation on on uh women of reproductive age's basic daily lives that i don't think uh, the public quite understands
2: um also like um any sort of uh um, uh, the various technologies that are used to uh, help infertile couples would all be kind of... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. IVF, all yeah, of that's I, out the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, um, so uh, there's a, yeah, no, that would be a very wide-ranging thing. But I mean, that is, for the anti-choice movement, that's always been the end goal. And it would lead to, you know, the desired end of a sort of nationwide ab- abortion ban. Now, we should mention that fetal personhood when it's in the political arena you know like does very badly and does very badly even in places that are like otherwise you know the redness of red states like i i believe it was like couldn't like pass muster in uh mississippi Mississippi,
3: yeah they had a a referendum on it i think in i want to say like 2009 or maybe it was more recently than that it was like fairly recently and it failed dramatically. Like yeah, so, yeah, and, yeah, and you yeah. know, abortion bans tend to fail when you put them to a direct yeah. referendum.
2: Yeah.
3: Also, the voters don't like these. But no, yeah, uh the yeah. anti-choice v- movement has captured the least democratic part of a, you know, only like tenuously democratic to begin with, American political system. Uh and they don't need voters' approval. Uh well that's well I mean is it so. by,
2: yeah or to put it another way it's yeah, precisely because they can't win in the uh, ballot box that they, uh, uh, you know, like they have to rely uh, on the courts uh, as they did with Dobbs. And uh, uh, it's, uh, um, th- th- that is where the arena would be. So if the goal is fetal personhood, then this decision um, is the path forward for them. Uh, not just this decision, but, you know, was uh one it could be the opening wedge, and it could be other feature court cases where like some version of fetal personhood comes up, and I, I believe even in dogs, like uh, Alito's like uh, majority decision, like he kind of gestured towards fetal personhood as you know something that uh the courts will take up at some point in the future. So um or as a live issue. So yeah, no, I so 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 I think for all these reasons it's like uh you know um you know beyond the uh you know crucial issue of the access to this this one drug, like yeah uh, um this seems to be like you know the uh the whole ball game is in this uh in the battle over uh Kazmarek's uh uh decision. Um and as I was kind of like you know broadly in a jocular way hinting at uh you know like do we really have faith that if this is just uh fought out in the judicial realm, you know, that the right decision will be come to, you know, even granting all the absurdities of the um Rx, uh, uh statement or or ha- has the right so captured the court that they can um go forward and I, yeah I think that it might be worth just um uh spelling out for listeners um, why the, this is the preferred uh, uh, venue for the the uh, the right in, in achieving these goals and and what actual real power that they have not just you know in uh, Amarillo Texas <laughs> but in like the higher levels of the judicial system where this is going to be tested. So, so so yeah, I mean like uh, what's the next level up like after the uh, the district judge?
3: Yeah, so this is this case is uh, like really crystallizes the extent to which all levels of the federal judiciary have really been captured by this extremely partisan uh, ideologically misogynist and like just fervently anti-choice judges. And that's, you know, not an accident. It's something that happened by design it was by the design of, you know, specifically Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society. And it's a project uh, several decades in the making that has now really come to fruition uh, so that, you know, the, Anti-choice and the conservative really, truly, the conservative legal movement, uh, believes that they can exercise a veto over the popular will of the people, over the executive and legislative van- branches uh, through the judiciary. And so, what would happen next traditionally is that you know the Department of Justice, the FDA, the Biden administration, they're uh, looking to appeal the ruling and get this order suspended, right? And traditionally what they would do is take that to the Fifth Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is the Court of Appeals that covers this uh, Amarillo district where Kismarek is. The Fifth Circuit is a rabidly conservative circuit. Um, and on the Fifth Circuit specifically, you have a couple of judges who are really auditioning for the next vacancy on the Supreme Court. I'm thinking specifically of this guy named James Ho, who's another Trump appointee. Uh, these are people who really, really want to be on the Supreme Court. They've already got a lifetime appointment, but it's not the fanciest one they could possibly get. Uh, and the way that they have calculated, I think probably correctly, uh, that they would service their ambitions um, in a Republican party that's captured by the far right in a you know right wing conservative judicial movement uh, that is very activist is by being as maximalist, as aggressive and as like candidly sadistic towards uh, women and people of color as possible. So you've got, uh, a fifth circuit full of, you know, not particularly principled jurists who are looking to show off. Um, Kismaric's order does some, like, procedural things that I think are kind of embarrassing for, um, the more traditional buttoned up conservative judges. Like, his theory of standing, which we've touched on, uh, is really quite fanciful. Um, he, took some weird circuitous routes to evade a uh, six-year statute of limitations on bringing uh, challenges to the FDA approval of drugs. This is a drug that has been approved for about 23 years. Um, and, you know, they uh, he had to come up with a rationale why this lawsuit could be brought now. Um, but I don't think that's the kind of thing that will stop the guys at the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit is... Um, is on board, and you know we saw this before back in um, sort of late. I think it was like twenty twenty one. I guess this uh, September or summer twenty twenty one, when um, the Texas bounty hunter law, six feet abortion bounty hunter law SB eight, went into effect. When uh, the Biden administration challenged that, it went to the Fifth Circuit, and they just sat on it their plan was to delay, delay, delay because that kept their preferred policy outcome in place for as long as it can. So I think the Fifth Circuit would, if they had their druthers, would sit on this order from Kismarek, let it go into effect, delay as long as they could, and then eventually rule in his favor, right? Um, luckily, uh, within an hour of Kismarek issuing his order, rescinding the FDA approval of Mifepristone, a Eastern District Court... Uh, I'm sorry. A district court judge in the Eastern District of Washington State, uh, issued his own opinion, barring the FDA from making any changes to the availability of Mifepristone. Um, at least in the I believe it was 17 blue states that had filed a lawsuit, um, challenging limits on Mifepristone's availability. Right. So there's two orders right now, for the FDA regarding this one drug. There are direct conflicts with each other. The FDA cannot obey both orders. Right. Um. And that creates a pretty good case for sending this not to the fifth circuit, but to the Supreme Court.
2: Uh and then I think you know a lot of the commentary I'm seeing uh, is from people that are pretty confident that, like, the court will, uh, even though it's a uh, you know six three uh, uh, conservative court, um, that they will launch at this that they uh, that at least. Um, because for all the reasons we've outlined that you know the, this uh 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 Matthew Kasmarrick's decision is so out of bounds so uh legally inventive and unorthodox that uh uh they will think that the uh, the people who are the institutionalist um among the Republican jurists will will blanch at this and so the theory that I've seen people putting out there is that you know okay, know you have six republican judges you can see alito thomas and gorsuch going along with this but that you know justice roberts uh will say you know as an institutionalist will say like you know this is too much this will discredit the court he's very concerned about the how people look at the court um and that perhaps kavanaugh and uh uh, amy coney barrett will go along with roberts and so so that and and then of course the um three uh, judges appointed by Democratic uh, presidents will also reject this. So that, you know, I'm seeing people who are fairly confident that the Supreme Court will, like, uh, be the solution to this. Is is that what you think? Is that what we, can can we, how confident can we be that the, you know, that that, that, uh, uh, the court's going to look at this and they're going to be, like, staring into the abyss and they're going to be thinking, like, you know, like, if we go along with this, and really, like a firm fetal personhood, uh, and uh, and you know, like render uh, the most widely used uh, um, uh, form uh, um, medication for abortion, um, illegal, not just in red states, but all across America, they're just gonna uh, blanch at that. How confident are we that that's gonna be the outcome?
3: I'm not confident. Look, I am. I'm going to be honest with you. I do not know how the Supreme Court will rule on this. There are people who I think are very smart. I'm thinking specifically of Mark Joseph Stern, who's a courts analyst over at Slate. He's looking at this and saying, no way. This standing issue is too, you know, it's too flimsy. His theory of standing is, is it's it doesn't give them a sufficient pretext to do this.
0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments.
3: This one, they're gonna knock away. Um, I don't know. Like the uh, SB8, you know, Rube Goldberg machine to evade judicial review was a way to ban abortion that substantially like limited the power of the judiciary, right? Or like really insulted the authority of the judiciary, SB8. And they let it happen because they don't like abortion. You know, these people really don't like abortion. Um, And they also really, like, it's also important to note they really don't like federal agencies. Uh, and what this does is put a real blow to the ability of the FDA to, um, you know, approve drugs and puts that authority largely in the hands of federal judges. And they might interpret that, in fact, as expanding their power in a way that they like. Um, if my money, if I was a betting woman, I'd, I think I think Barrett probably goes for this. Um, I think Roberts probably doesn't, which means the swing vote is Brett Kavanaugh, which is not a place you want to be.
2: Yeah, 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 No, no, no. I think I think that's right. And yeah, exactly. I uh I don't know how reassuring it is, even if the, this is overturned that uh uh you know like um all these you know uh, such a momentous uh decision has to we have to rely on Brett Kavanaugh. Um and I, I the, the other thing I might put forward just as a speculation is like how do we see what the you know the courts uh see this position in history as. Uh, because obviously Justice Roberts is concerned about the legitimacy of the court, and uh, that's why you know he didn't go along with Dobbs, and he he kind of even but he kind really, of went
3: along with Dobbs. Don't give well, him too well, much well, credit. Well, well, he like he mostly he did go along, didn't go along with
2: the Dobbs. He did yeah. go along with the 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 full, and he's always been trying to you know like how to get conservative results without like the look of overreach, you know, like without uh, you know such a raw assertion of judicial power. Uh, But, I mean, historically, I think that the the courts, when they're faced with a democratic revolution, um, you know, uh, sometimes they really just double down and, like, just think, like, well, we have this power. We have to use it as much as we can. And that was the logic of the Supreme Court, you know, in the years leading up to the Civil War, that as you saw the abolitionist movement rising and as the Republican Party was rising, the people in the courts who were, you know, loved slavery and said, well, no, this is our last moment of power. We have to do it. We have to do Dred Scott. And one saw the same time, And then it was only, you know, through the Civil War and through Lincoln really changing the courts that uh, they could be defeated the same dynamic happened with the new deal where it's precisely once you have a you know a national majority coalition to like really intervene in the economy that's when the you know the judges really like try to um uh, use as much power as they can to overturn it uh and again leading to like a clash between um uh the uh, uh a mass political movement headed by roosevelt against the courts and so i sort of feel like you know if you have like six uh, Republican judges um, you know, five of them might get to the point where they think like this is it, this is the moment of truth you know, we have this power uh, none of what we want can be achieved through democracy uh, you know, we have to we have to go all out this might be, you know if we're thinking about this in terms of power and not just law then this might be like um, you know, you might be able to get five judges to think like you know, uh, this is our last shot. This is this is the do or die moment. Um, and uh, at do or die moments, I don't think judges, uh, you know, like always uh, back down, but quite the reverse. Uh, so, so, so I mean, that it's just that, that's all speculative. To you know, say that we don't know. Uh, but I think maybe finally, to maybe uh, the last uh, element of the puzzle to look at here is the politics of this, because. You know, there's a divide on both parties. And then the Democrats, we talk a little bit about their divide first, where I think Joe Biden and the Biden Biden House are really betting on the Supreme Court. They're, you know, they think that the issue of standing um, and the sort of, you know, uh, other legal problems that we've discussed are so great that the Supreme Court will do the right thing. And so they're saying, we got to, you know, um, uh, we'll, uh, we're we appealing, you know, go through the courts and we'll be end up in a good place. Uh, but within the Democratic Party, we're seeing a lot of other voices, um, uh, AOC, uh, a lot of governors, like including Gretchen Whitmer, um, a lot of senators, including, you know, uh, Sheldon uh, Whitehouse, who are basically saying, you know, we can't rely on the courts. The, these courts have like, you know, they've really shown how lawless they are. And we have to actually like, you know, assert power, you um, Uh, that we have uh, uh, as lawmakers through democracy and basically say like, you know, we can't, we don't have to accept what a lawless court says. You know, the judges made his decision, let him enforce it. Um, And that Joe Biden has to just say, you know, whatever the courts decide, you know, like I'm the president, uh, I oversee the administration, the FDA has said this, you know, I'm going to go with the FDA, not the judges. Uh, and so I, I, so is that a fair description of the sort of, like, political divide on the, you know, democratic side between people, you know, the more cautious Biden approach which is to rely on the courts and a lot of lawmakers were basically like, you know, uh, the judges are lawless and we have to think about, like, you know, opposing not just this one decision, but the courts themselves.
3: Yeah, I think this is a really, like... like- Big meta question is right. It's like, what does this mean? This moment of after the reversal of Dobbs, what does this mean about the status of the judiciary in America? Right, the federal judiciary, which has been um, rabidly politicized and disproportionately packed through some, you know, procedural malfeasance by Mitch McConnell in the Senate, uh, with you know these partisan right wing uh, judges upon whom there is no check. Right, like life, like. Every Article Three judge is a lifetime appointment. Um, you can't get rid of them. There's really not any way to uh, limit their power. And I think also something that we need to talk about is that, you know, Steve Latick uh, is a professor at the University of Texas Law School, makes this point, which is that, you know, kind of in the same way that war powers after 9 11 were moved from the legislature to the executive um legislation power has been moved from the legislatures which especially like congress which is no longer really functioning it's just this gridlocked body um and those legislative powers the law making law writing power has really moved to ju- the judiciary um and the problem is the judiciary is not elected <laughs> and also they can't be removed from office um and you know at the supreme court in particular i think you have a lot of people who are quite comfortable with that um Sam Alito, uh, in his majority opinion in Dobbs, sort of was like, this is actually going to settle the issue because Roe was so contentious and like the opposite has happened. What you have is now an outpouring of even more litigation uh, and even greater attempts to, um, you know, fight over the, the limits and the extent of abortion bans. Um, I think that, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This nationwide situation in which um, abortion is legal in some states and illegal uh, with quite severe punishments in others is not uh, not sustainable. And I think we have a Supreme Court that is quite ready to impose a national ban and thereby resolve it. And they are quite comfortable exerting their power in that way. Um, they are they're. Like they are not um loyal to democracy qua democracy they are loyal to their their um policy positions and you know the the supreme court doesn't make sense none of their actions make sense if you understand them as jurists they make sense if they they make perfect sense if you understand them as politicians, which is what they are um you do have as you mentioned gee a really increasing uh sort of candor about this uh on the in the democratic party, particularly in the democratic grassroots you have um You know, right now we have our president who's a little squeamish on abortion in particular. He um, is a Catholic. He is an old white guy. He uh, doesn't like doing cultural fights. He's surrounded by these centrists who tell him he's gonna lose cultural fights and he's not comfortable there anyway. So he doesn't really want to touch abortion with a 10 foot full. I don't think that's gonna be a position that he can sustain either. Um, And you know, he's already moved to to addressing it a little bit more, Uh, but you know, when Dobbs happened, they were not ready. It was embarrassing. and they are beginning to message about it in a slightly more clear, less terrified way. But the real leadership has been coming from people like Gretchen Whitmer, who is aggressively campaigning on uh, abortion against abortion bans uh, and as a sort of representative of this aspiration for pluralist America that truly includes women and people of color and queer people as equal citizens. And that is working for her incredibly well in not, you know, in, in Michigan, which is not Berkeley, California. You know what I mean? Um, right, yeah. Um, and she she ran the table in her last election. Uh, it wasn't close and, and it kind of should have been close. Um, so, you know, and, and meanwhile, they're trying to kill her. Anyway, that's, that's Gretchen Whitmer. But you know, she's part of a more aggressive stance on cultural issues. And I think what you're gonna have to see and what you will see is that aggressive stance on social issues that sort of avowed shameless, like, no, we do support abortion rights. We are gonna campaign on abortion rights. That's gonna extend necessarily to more realism about the judiciary. Uh, And you you do see it from like Sheldon Whitehouse to his great credit, a Senator from Rhode Island has been saying that the Biden administration should ignore this order for months. He's like, it's gonna come down this joker, uh, you know, unelected, undisposable (laughs) um, lifetime appointee in Amarillo, Texas is going to say that, you know, millions of American women can't get a approved safe medication to control their own lives. And we should say you don't have that authority. Enforce it on your own if you want to. Um, And, you know, after the uh decision did come down aoc went on cnn and said the same thing and like look there's a there's a argument to be made a like more procedural argument that um the judge does not actually have the authority that he granted himself to um remove the drug from the market that's you know there's a technicality in the fdc's um the the law that created the fdc that um or uh, FDA rather, the uh, law that created the FDA that uh, only the FDA has the authority to remove drugs from the market and that this isn't actually something judges can do. And that's sort of like a technical procedural argument, but there's also a bigger democracy argument, which is that it is not a true democracy to have the will of the voters overturned by the, wi- the whim of an unelected judge, right? And I think that is the tension that is going to animate um, responses to the judiciary and the Republican Party going forward. Biden doesn't want to go there. Biden wants to make a standing argument to the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court give him a stamp of approval and say, it's OK, you can go, you know, have your abortion medication in your handful of remaining legal states for now. Um, but I don't think that's the real long term strategy. That's a band-aid on a bullet wound for the American judiciary right now.
2: Not just in the abortion uh, decision, but also like, you know, in all the sort of scandals surrounding Clarence Thomas. Um uh you know, most recently, uh with uh his uh, friendship and you know uh long-standing habit of going on luxurious vacations uh with um, America's foremost collector of Hitler paintings, uh Harlan Grove <laughs> So the uh, uh you know, and uh, 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 you know who's also someone who's had uh business before the courts. Uh, but you know, like, uh, lavishes money on Clarence Thomas and uh, has hired Clarence Thomas's wife. So, so there's, and again, one sees a divide on the Democrats, where you know there's like some Democrats who are saying, you know, like bloody murder. I think AOC has called for the impeachment of Thomas, um, and then conversely, you know, like Dick Durbin, um, a senator has you know said, well, this is bad, but I think. Uh, you know, Justice um, Roberts should uh, uh, have an investigation and the court should clean house. You know, like, with, with, again, the idea that, you know, the courts can be relied on uh, to handle these things their own way. We don't want to challenge them. So, so that that does seem to be like the sort of democratic divide. Like, you know, are we going to have a fight with the courts and, you know, do everything possible to, you know, um, limit their powers and to change the makeup of the courts, to, you know, and challenge their legitimacy when they do things like this? Or are we going to trust the system? Uh, so so, um, and as I, I think you're sort of indicating, you know, you really think that the sort of you know, uh, Gretchen Whitmore, Sheldon Whitehouse, AOC thinking seems is probably going to be where things are going to go with the Democrats. That Biden is a kind of lagging, uh, uh, but you know, he's someone who follows the party, and if that's where the party goes, um, uh, that's maybe where the Democrats are going to head.
3: I think. I think the. Um the extremism of the federal judiciary, of these Republican appointed judges on the federal judiciary who are sort of, as you were alluding to with Thomas, in many cases, just like openly corrupt uh, and, and wildly out of step with the will of the American people, their power is not commiserate with the idea of a democratic country, right? And the more they pursue this sort of like absolutist understanding of their own, uh, authority. And the more they pursue, you know, the most maximalist understanding of their own agenda, the more salient that is going to become for American voters. Um, and so, you know, Biden wants to ignore the question of the judiciary, you know, we, it came up a little bit in the 2020 primary and he, you know, assembled this kind of bullshit panel <laughs> that of like, you know, a couple of law professors, if you want, like, if you want a, a 400 page report on why you shouldn't, it's impossible for you to do anything, like get a bunch of lawyers together uh, and they will uh, make a stunning case for impotence. Um, and you know, uh, and, that, and that was what he wanted them to do, right? He wanted it off of his plate. Uh, he wanted to say, well, I looked into it, turns out you know, nothing is possible and, and, and we cannot have a better world. Uh, Cause he's afraid. He's afraid of the constitutional crisis, but that's not a constitutional crisis. He he created. It's one Matthew Kismar created. It's one Sam Alito created. It's one, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas and uh Harlan Crow have created. Like this is a um, this is a fight that's coming whether Joe Biden wants it or not. And you know he 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 does follow the party. You know I hope I hope that this becomes more salient. It might it might take a while, but um, you know. Confidence in the Supreme Court is at an all time low, like probably the worst thing they could have done for judicial legitimacy was overturn Roe and they couldn't stop themselves from doing it. Uh, And eventually, you know, there's gonna be a demand to ignore these um, orders. Judges are not kings. They should stop behaving like they're kings and we should stop pretending that they have the authority of kings.
2: Yeah no I I I, I think that's right. that's a dynamic at work. Uh we should uh, just briefly outline you know the similar uh divide on the Republican side. Uh but it's more on the issue of, you know, like is this good politics? I think, you know, especially after the kind of um loss um uh in the uh uh, recent uh, election in uh, Wisconsin uh in the uh, the flipping of the courts there uh I think people are more and more getting uh aware you know of the Dobbs effect that Dobbs has really changed the political Dynamic and it's very bad for Republicans and if Dobbs is bad then you know this uh, uh, Kerrick, uh thing is not going to be very um uh, uh good for them either and one is seeing Republican like uh, uh elected officials or people involved with the saying like we should move on from abortion we should just like not talk about it um but conversely like you know one has um an activist base that is very excited by the post office environment is excited by all the things that they can do is pushing uh local lawmakers uh to go further is pushing judges to go further and you know like one thing I want to maybe emphasize is that Matthew Kismarek is not, should not be seen as just a wackadoodle judge out of Texas, although he is a wackadoodle judge out of Texas. Uh he's part of a whole infrastructure. And I thought it was significant that there was like um um uh, democratic attorney generals in um more than 20 states who um basically uh even for, before the decision had come out were saying that they were gonna push um um, that if there's such a decision, they would make it difficult for pe- uh, women to get uh, Um And so, and one sees that the the, the Heritage Foundation, I uh, just uh, put out a statement from uh, one of their experts that was very enthusiastic about the judge's decision. So there is, it seems to be like a divide um, uh, between the sort of political figures that might be wary of abortion as a decision and the activist base. And I gotta say, that The existence of the activist base means that the you know Republican politicians say, let's just ignore abortion, they're not going to get anywhere because uh it's not just that like Democrats are mad and uh the, the majority of people, not just Democrats, but the major the vast majority of people who in America who want legal abortion are mad, but also that the uh a- anti-abortion minority that has so much power in the GOP, they're super excited. So, like I don't actually understand how you can have uh, you know, like, uh, let, let, let's just, uh, let's just pretend Dobbs never happened. Let's just move on. Like that doesn't seem like a viable position. Uh, it's, it's as unviable as Joe Biden's, uh, decision to just trust the system.
3: Yeah. You know, um, if there is a very thin silver lining to this, um, you know, human rights cataclysm that is the end of, of, uh, Roe v. Wade, it's that now, uh, Republicans are the dog that caught the car. Like they got the thing that they had wanted for decades and now it's threatening to destroy them. Um, They, and this is true, not only of abortion, I think like most saliently with abortion, but it's also true of, you know, Donald Trump in the 2024 presidential primary is they have a base that is very loud and very powerful and to whom they, you know, need to show deference that they cannot control and that is dragging them to these like electorally disastrous positions. Um you know, I I think it's fair to say that before Dobbs there was a pro-choice majority in America that was rather complacent, right? Like they didn't want to change the status quo. They they were like fairly happy with the status quo. Um as a you know, pro-abortion feminists, I can give you a lot of reasons why the, like, pre dob status quo was in fact insufficient for actual, uh, like, women's dignity and equality and health. But, um, you know, the majority of American voters were pro-choice in a way that Roe satisfied, you know? Um, and they weren't being driven to the polls by it. It was not um, a motivating factor for them because they had what they wanted. I think Democrats have been surprised and I think Republicans have been really unnerved and shocked at how motivating abortion bans have been since Dobbs. It is not something that is going away. Uh it is something where you know the bodies are going to pile up and more and more people are going to know uh someone who is affected by this. I think with Mifa Pristone in particular, you know miscarriages are common enough that most people know what a miscarriage looks like especially like a first trimester miscarriage and it doesn't look like a baby uh and the idea that those products of gestation could have equal or in practice greater standing than the living with breathing women who we all know is i think morally offensive to people um and that has been I have been encouraged by the sustained anger that is showing up in in the election since
2: Dobbs. Yeah, no exactly right. I think that the I mean one just hasn't just think about it like logically in terms of how could this issue go away like like women you know uh have sex every day uh w- they're women who need abortion like every day. <laughs> they're like you know women are affected by you know uh, what the laws, uh around uh portion every day like it is not like an issue so, so, so if you have an environment where like this is all up for grabs and increasingly contested and increasingly uncertain uh th- there's no way this could go this can go away um and so yeah I, I I think that like on um um it's hard for me to see like how um the Republican Elite that might want, just say well we i mean this is what ann coulter was saying like the uh, pro-life people she calls them should just take the victory say you know we got what we wanted we got dobbs you know like take the take the w and move on and but that's not what they want no, <laughs> they, uh, they, you know, they never just wanted dobbs they, they, they want like dobbs as a predicate for like much more personhood. Abortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah, want yeah,
3: uh yeah. fetal personhood they want established gender hierarchy they want I don't know, coverture probably. Like, here's the thing you were talking about how women have sex every day, or we'll there are women who need abortions like every single day in this country. Like, here's the other thing women vote. Women are the majority of voters. And what they have, te- what Republicans have done is said to a majority of voters, you know, one in four American women are going to have an abortion by the time their reproductive age is over, right? And they said to one in four of a majority of their voters, we're going to, you know, roll the dice. On whether your life changes or not, we're gonna roll the dice on whether you go through this incredibly protracted, very uncomfortable, incredibly demanding physical ordeal. We're gonna roll the dice on whether or not you have to leave work for months on end. We're gonna roll the dice on whether you go through a process of giving birth in which, you know, uh, the health outcomes and and, and mortality rates are, are like pretty dismal in the United States. We're gonna roll the dice on what your family looks like, uh, and we're gonna you know intervene in all of this. For you, in the very intimate parts of your body and life, in the very uh, particular parts of how your what your family looks like and how it functions, we're gonna make that decision for you. Of course, people fucking hate it. Um, it's really presumptuous and creepy. Um, and you know, this is I think that um, gender as salience can be turned on and off. I think it becomes less salient in more egalitarian places right like when women are doing pretty well when they have a lot of ability to live independently of men and control their own lives like it becomes less of a big deal like you just created a new impediment impetus for pro-choice feminist activism uh by you know deciding to intimately invade uh the lives of the majority of your voters on the basis of their sex um I don't know why they thought this wouldn't be politically uh, devastating to them, but I, you know, I hope they continue to get what they deserve.
2: That's a, that's a good note to end on. Uh, uh, <laughs> we should hope that they get what they deserve, even though, unfortunately that also means a lot of people are going to get a reality that they don't deserve. But in, in any case, I'm very uh, grateful once again, for Mara Donegan for uh, being on the um uh, the podcast always uh you know like a beacon of light and clarity uh on these issues your writing can be found in the guardian uh is there anything else people should know
1: uh
3: i guess you could follow me on twitter while twitter's still around i'm at moira donnegan there uh you can sign up for my substack newsletter called not the fun kind uh and gee i'm really grateful to have been here you always uh help me sink through all this and this was a lot of fun
1: today okay thank you all right thanks